Today on Golden Girls Sports, Mr. Clean gets dirty, and somehow Blanche Devereaux isn't involved. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby. Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead! The chicken! Little Sister premiered on April 1st, 1989, near the tail end of the Golden Girls' fourth season. It was written by Christopher Lloyd and directed by Terry Hughes. A visit by Rose's younger sister, Holly, prompts them both to examine their long, contentious relationship, while Sophia has a very different problem. She was dog-sitting Dreyfus for the neighbor Weston family and lost him. Honey, what you looking for? Nothing. (laughs) Now, Sophia, tell me the truth. All right, Dreyfus is gone. He ran away? No, we had a falling out and agreed to a trial separation. (laughs) Of course he ran away. Of when? I'm not sure. I have it pinpointed sometime between 10.15 today and late last Thursday. (laughs) You have no recollection of Dreyfus since last Thursday? I have no recollection, period, since last Thursday. (laughs) Anything could have happened in three days. I just hope I'm not carrying Steve Garvey's baby. Per the rules of sitcom law, Sophia decides to buy a second identical dog at a pet store just in time for the real Dreyfus to return home. She comically juggles the two of them throughout the house until eventually returning the right one to the Westons. Or did she? We talked a little about Little Sister in episode 21 of this podcast, where we mentioned guest star Inga Swenson. But we didn't talk about that episode's other big guest star, Bear the Dog who played Dreyfus for all seven seasons of Empty Nest's run, as well as four episodes of The Golden Girls. Bear was three and a half years old when he started on Empty Nest and came from a showbiz family. His father, Boomer, had worked with Merlin Olsen on Father Murphy. His brother, Bodie, played Shirley MacLaine's dog in Steel Magnolias, and his other brother, Julio, acted as his double on Empty Nest and was used in running scenes. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Julio also appeared in Little Sister as the Dreyfus double Sophia picks up at the pet store, but I can't confirm that. Bear, a 105-pound St. Bernard Golden Retriever mix, was beloved on Empty Nest's set, but had a special place in his heart for star Richard Mulligan. Mulligan was apprehensive about working with the dog because he had never acted alongside an animal before in his career, but in no time the two became good friends. Mulligan once told Cox News Service, quote, On the set, Bear is around me a lot. I have a place on the set where I study, a little area off the dining room, and he's always there. It really is like having your own dog. End quote. Bear had two trainers during the run of the show, Joel Silverman for the first four seasons and Mark Forbes for the final three. During season three, Bear and a non-acting dog named Heidi gave birth to a litter of six male puppies who were weaned and bottle-fed on the set by the actors after it was clear that Heidi was struggling to raise them all. When the series concluded, Bear went home with trainer Mark Forbes and lived a quiet, comfortable life. He passed away at 12 and a half, which is 87 and a half in dog years. No wonder he and Sophia got along so well.
Like Dreyfus, Sophia was no stranger to trouble. For most of his playing career, Steve Garvey was known as Mr. Clean and was the model pro athlete and family man. But in 1988, that squeaky clean image blew up, big time. In his 19-year playing career, 14 with the Los Angeles Dodgers and 5 with the San Diego Padres, Steve Garvey did it all. He played in five World Series, winning the title with L.A. in 1981. He was named National League MVP in 1974 with a 200-hit, 111-RBI season following a full-time switch from third base to first base. He played in 10 All-Star games, winning MVP twice, won four gold gloves, and was named NLCS MVP twice. Garvey's 1,207 consecutive games played is still a record for the National League and the fourth longest consecutive game streak in baseball history. He never missed a game between September of 1975 and July of 1983. In 1983, Garvey left LA to sign a free agent contract with the division rival and constantly struggling San Diego Padres. There, he led that team's dramatic turnaround, helping them to the playoffs for the first time in the 15-year history of the franchise. And his game-winning home run in Game 5 of the 1984 NLCS also sent the Padres to their first World Series. He retired in 1987 at the age of 38, with his choice of post-career playing options well ahead of him. Off the field, Garvey was the center of the picture of the American family. He married his college sweetheart Cindy in the early 70s, and the couple had two young daughters who were a frequent presence at baseball events. Cindy was a celebrity herself, co-hosting AM Los Angeles with Regis Philbin in the early 80s, and following him to New York to be the first host of the nationally syndicated The Morning Show on ABC. Steve was neat and organized to a fault, often vacuuming on game days just because the lines he made in the carpet soothed him. A staunch conservative, even as a young man, he harbored dreams of a political career to the point where his teammates often called him Senator. Garvey was all iron shirts and slacks, never jeans. He grew up in a strict home in Tampa, Florida, and was expected to say yes ma'am and yes sir to his parents. He wasn't expected to go to church more than they did, but he did anyway. Steve and Cindy Garvey divorced in 1983, which at first glance didn't seem like all that big of a deal. But about five years later, that divorce was seen as just one aspect of a scandalous private life that would temporarily transcend Steve's sports life by great lengths. On November 25, 1988, Steve Garvey popped the question to his then-girlfriend, Rebecca Mendenhall, whom he met when he was interviewed by CNN, where she was a producer. There was just the small matter of Judy Ross, Garvey's longtime secretary that he had been in a relationship with since 1981. Oh, and there was also Cheryl Ann Moulton, who in July of 1988 informed Garvey that she was pregnant with his child, the product of a six-month affair the two had had that year. Yeah, it, it's pretty complicated, and it all came out throughout 1989. By the time his engagement to Mendenhall was announced to the press, Garvey was already asking her to postpone the wedding, not only because of Moulton's pregnancy, but because his first wife Cindy was demanding $25,000 she said he owed her. Mendenhall then flew from Atlanta to San Diego in January to comfort her man for a few days. Later that month, Mendenhall informed Garvey that she too was pregnant. Garvey informed her that he was now engaged to Candace Thomas, a former cheerleader 20 years his junior. All this was going on while he was still kind of seeing Judy Ross, who Garvey assured he would marry one day. 
after telling her he would in fact be marrying yet another new lady, Ross said Garvey expected her to be happy for him and Candace Thomas. Quote, Can you believe it? I don't know how he dealt with all of us in the course of a year. The man's got great stamina. End quote. There's a lot more that happened both before and after that short timeline. Cindy found out about Steve's multiple affairs around 1982, when she came across Ross's appointment book, which contained notes about her and Steve doing couples things like skiing or visiting San Francisco. Cindy's response was to trash Steve's office with one of his baseball bats. Later, when she found his date book, Cindy found a list of National League cities, each with a woman's name and phone number next to it. And in a strange Golden Girls-esque Blanche Devereaux-style twist, some names even had stars next to them. That's all according to her book, The Secret Life of Cindy Garvey, which was published in 89. In it, she called Steve, among other things, quote, asexual towards her, a sociopath, and a pathological liar. Turns out, Steve never actually proposed to her. Their wedding ring was purchased by nosy Dodgers GM Al Campanis, and their engagement was announced on the Dodgers Stadium scoreboard without her prior consent. Cindy left Steve for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award-winning composer Marvin Hamlish, and claimed in the book that Steve actually bartered her away to Hamlish in a two-hour powwow in their den. Garvey, who appeared to each woman as an attentive, gift-showering boyfriend, has called that period his, quote, midlife disaster. And the joke started almost immediately. There were bumper stickers that read, Honk if you're carrying Steve Garvey's baby, or I got to first base with Steve Garvey. T-shirts were sold in San Diego with the saying, Steve Garvey's not my padre. He went from all-star to late-night show punchline in no time at all. And in a decision that almost makes you respect the guy, he chose to face his critics head-on in an appearance on Larry King, where Garvey not only fielded personal questions from the host, but a raft of pointed ones from callers across the country. When one lady called out his, quote, self-righteous attitude, Garvey joked she must have been a San Francisco Giants fan. Asked by King about how he explained the situation to his two daughters, Garvey answered, quote, They are the two people I'm most sorry to and feel the most for. I have tried to explain my feelings to them and that their father will do what is right. And again, I have to tell them their dad is fallible. Again, over the years, people have said, You're the all-American boy, squeaky clean. No, I say, I just try hard. I do strike out sometimes. End quote. The scandal was a hot water cooler topic for a while, and then it wasn't. Like everything, it just went away and was replaced by the next hot topic. Steve Garvey is still married to Candace Thomas, and they have three kids together. He's still a baseball giant, although not a Hall of Famer, having missed out on the requisite number of votes each year he was eligible. He's also battled money problems for years, and has been sued for running up thousands of dollars in unpaid bills. Garvey spent years as a motivational speaker charging upwards of $10,000 per appearance, while also not paying water, gas, or electric bills, stiffing supermarkets, and buying luxury items he couldn't afford. At one point in 2006, his own lawyers were suing him for delinquent payments. Once again, Garvey showed an incredible amount of candor in answering questions from reporters about his very public problems. Quote, Do I expect to pay every debt? Do I want to? Absolutely. The day I'm able to be debt-free is the day I'm going to be the happiest guy around. End quote. Meanwhile, one of his jilted lawyers once quipped, quote, Once a Dodger, always a Dodger. End quote. As recently as 2014, 
Steve and Candace Garvey were featured in an MLB.com series called Home Field Advantage, which gives a virtual tour of their Mediterranean-style villa in sunny California. All these years later, Steve Garvey is still trying to look like Mr. Clean, with a lot of the dirt he kicked up years ago swept conveniently under the rug. Scandal is nothing new to baseball. Steroids and stealing signs are small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. Babe Ruth was a drunk and a womanizer, which really wasn't a well-kept secret for all that long. And the less said about violent, racist scumbag Ty Cobb, the better. But it was Jim Bouton's 1970 book, Ball Four, that opened the floodgates on what really goes on in a locker room. Ball Four showed ballplayers as crass, skirt-chasing, pill-popping frat boys being paid to play a game. A minor character in that book was Yankees first baseman and outfielder Joe Pepitone, who came off as an amiable goofball that was far too into his personal appearance and his precious collection of ridiculous hairpieces. Pepitone was name-checked on the Golden Girls in Season 2's Whose Face Is This Anyway, written by Winifred Hervey. Blanche is shocked to see that the women of her old sorority are still gorgeous, and she was not the best-looking woman at their reunion. Dorothy tries to calm her down, but it's not easy. Now, Blanche, I mean, what difference does it make? Oh, Dorothy, you cannot possibly begin to comprehend the terrible trauma a gorgeous woman goes through when she realizes her beauty is starting to fade. And who do you see when you look at me, Blanche? Joe Pepitone? Blanche's main area of concern is always her appearance. Back in season one's Rose the Prude, Dorothy warns Blanche not to bend over a mirror and look at her face which she promptly does and is horrified by. But laying on her back makes her look like she just had a facelift and back to her normally gorgeous self. The scene, which was the first cheesecake bit in the show's history, was a late addition made by creator Susan Harris, who wrote it on a plane back to New York. It became so iconic and representative of what the show was about that it was used again when the girls performed on stage at the London Palladium for Queen Elizabeth II in 1988. In season four's Sophia's Choice, Blanche opens the episode announcing that she's going to use her recent bonus at work to get her breasts enlarged. The girls spend parts of the next 22 minutes surrounded by boobs of all sizes, while Blanche debates how big she wants to go. But she ends up using the money to help a friend of Sophia's enjoy a stay in a better assisted living facility, proving that Blanche isn't as vain as she always appears. Joe Pepitone had an okay baseball career. 258 lifetime hitter with 721 RBI, 219 homers in a dozen years in the majors. He played in three straight All-Star games and won three gold gloves at first base. The Brooklyn-born Pepitone spent the first nine years of his career with the Yankees, who traded him to Houston in 1970. The Astros sold him to the Cubs after half a season, and he spent four years in Chicago before finishing up with a few games as an Atlanta Brave in 1973. He retired after that season at the age of 33. But that's only one small part of his story. Five years after Ball 4 was published, Pepitone released his own book entitled Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud, and it made Jim Bouton's ribald book look like Casey at the bat. Pepitone spoke very openly about his tough upbringing and abuse as a child, his mob ties, his fiendish drug habits, his wild and often freaky sexual escapades throughout New York and Chicago in the 60s and 70s, and everything else that was weighing on his mind at the time but he also found time to tell stories about playing pool with Frank Sinatra, 
sharing the stage with Tom Jones and smoking weed with Mickey Mantle. Dan Epstein of Rolling Stone said, Joe, you could have made us proud, quote, maybe one of the most honest books ever written by a professional athlete, end quote. Pepitone himself said the book was more therapy than anything, and has talked about how his co-author Barry Stainback would sometimes turn the tape recorder off and the two would just talk things out like a psychologist and a client. While Pepitone does find some reflection time and redemption at the end of the book, his life was a mess when he retired. At only 33 years old, he was broke, twice divorced, and had lost custody of his three kids. The intervening years had even more chaos. He did time on Rikers Island in New York in 1988 after running a red light and being caught with cocaine, quaaludes, and a freebasing kit in his car. The judge told him, quote, I find it particularly sad when someone who graced New York in Yankee pinstripes will now have to serve his time with the New York Department of Corrections in their prison stripes, end quote. Pepitone was released on a work program after being given a job as a minor league instructor by Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. But his problems continued even into the 1990s, with charges for assault and for drunk driving through the Queens Midtown Tunnel. He did earn two World Series rings for being part of the Yankees' front office in 1988 and 89. At 77, you're more likely to hear Joe Pepitone's name on Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm because writer and star Larry David loves using it for reasons unknown. Pepitone was the Yankees legend that Kramer plunked at the fantasy camp he attended, sparking a brouhaha that ended up with Mickey Mantle being punched in the mouth in the visa. Kramer also told some tourists that Pepitone designed Central Park while he was driving a handsome cab in the Rye. He was later mentioned on Seinfeld's The Mom and Pop Store and in three episodes of Curb. He may not have been a superstar, but there's something about the name Joe Pepitone that screams 1960s New York baseball. Decorated ex-teammates like Bobby Richardson, Whitey Ford, and Elston Howard, or the entire New York Mets franchise, really can't say that. A contemporary of Steve Garvey's, and for a short time Joe Pepitone's, was Johnny Bench, considered one of the greatest catchers of all time, if not the greatest. He also came up on an episode of The Golden Girls in Season 3's Brotherly Love, written by Jeffrey Farrow and Frederick Weiss. In a clever bit of foreshadowing, Blanche complains about a guy who wasn't totally honest with her. You missed my point, Dorothy. He told me he was a lawyer. Turns out he's a fruit waxer. <laughs> Why do men have to put up false pretenses? This from a woman who wears more padding on her chest than Johnny Bench. <laughs> By the end of the episode, Dorothy will be the one complaining about a man putting on false pretenses. When she begins a spurious relationship with Stan's brother, Ted, which we'll talk about again in a few weeks. Brotherly Love aired on November 14, 1987, two years before Johnny Bench was enshrined in Cooperstown. Since he first burst onto the scene in the late 60s, teams are still looking for catchers that come within spitting distance of being like him. Originally from Oklahoma, Bench will always be connected to the city of Cincinnati, where he played all 17 years of his career for the Reds. He was named National League Rookie of the Year in 1968 with 155 hits and 82 RBI, beating out 19-game winner Mets pitcher Jerry Kuzman. In 1970, Bench led the league with 45 homers and 148 RBI, ridiculous numbers for anyone, especially a catcher, and was named NL MVP. 
After a down year the following season, he was named NL MVP again in 1972 after hitting 40 home runs and driving in 125 runs. Bench's Big Red Machine played in four World Series, winning back-to-back titles in 1975 and 76. Bench was named Series MVP of that last title, a four-game sweep of the New York Yankees. He played in 14 All-Star games, seven as a teammate of Steve Garvey on the National League team, and earned 10 gold gloves, setting the example for how catchers should defend home plate. He also took great pride in working with pitchers to call a game from behind the plate. Once in spring training, a pitcher kept waving off Bench's signs that his fastball wasn't working. So to illustrate his point, Bench went ahead and called for a fastball, and then dropped his mitt and caught the ball in his bare hands. Bench later helped that same pitcher throw a no-hitter. Bench told Forbes magazine in May of 2018, quote, The great thing about catching for me was that there are four ways to have a great game. You can call a great game, you could throw runners out, you could block home plate, and you can get hits. End quote. He spent the last three years of his career playing first base for the Reds, but when he retired in 1983, Bench was the career leader in home runs by a catcher with 326. That number has since been eclipsed by both Carlton Fisk and then Mike Piazza. Since 2000, the best catchers in college baseball are given the Johnny Bench Award, which is wild since Bench himself never played NCAA baseball. In 2011, a statue of Bench was unveiled inside the Reds' home stadium, Great American Ballpark. Since retiring, Johnny Bench has been a baseball broadcaster, a pitchman for Krylon Paints, Kingsford Charcoal, and other companies, an author, a semi-pro senior golfer, a businessman, and board member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. Aside from being baseball players, Bench doesn't seem to have a lot in common with Steve Garvey or Joe Pepitone, and has been a scholar and gentleman for the most part off the field. Just... Don't ask him why his ex-teammate Pete Rose isn't sitting next to him in the Hall of Fame. He's kind of sick of talking about it. For kids in the 1980s, Johnny Bench might be remembered most for his time on TV's The Baseball Bunch, in which he taught lessons about the game with the help of Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda and the legendary San Diego Chicken, who we discussed in our mascot show back in episode 12. We talked extensively about Lasorda in episode 2 of this podcast, which focused on the Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers. Lasorda was mentioned on the Golden Girls another time that I forgot to include in that episode, so we'll throw it in here. In Season 2's To Catch a Neighbor, written by Russell Marcus, the girls' house is used as a home base for two detectives staking out a couple of neighbors who are up to no good. At first, Dorothy is adamant that these cops need to do their business elsewhere, but she ends up falling for the strong, confident elder officer, Detective Al Mullins. Dorothy is conflicted about how to tell him and so she goes to her mother, who is no help at all, and wants to call in a fresh arm. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. First of all, don't think your problem is so unique. People do crazy things for love all the time. Let me tell you a little story. Picture this. Sicily, August, 1908. No, that's not it. <laughs> but if you ever need a story about jealousy, this one's a pit. Ma, just go to sleep. No, no, I remember. Havana, 1957. No, I was never in Havana. Ma. I I meant Brooklyn, 1958. No, that's not it. I don't believe it. I'm dry. I got nothing. 
It's okay, Mom. No, it's not. I feel like Tommy Lasorda should be standing by the bed waving to the bullpen. Considering the names in the Dodgers' bullpen in 1987, guys like Tim Leary, Brian Holton, and Ken Howell, Lasorda probably would have left his starters out there for as long as he could. Fernando Valenzuela led the NL with 12 complete games that season, while teammate Oral Hershiser had 10 of his own. Anyway, in a shocking twist, especially for the Golden Girls, the stakeout leads to a shootout, and Al's young partner Bobby Hopkins takes a bullet in the shoulder. He's okay, and the crooks get caught, but Dorothy and Al decide that their relationship won't work with her worrying about him all the time. To Catch a Neighbor was the third to last episode of season two, but was technically the season's finale. The last episodes aired that season were the wraparound clip show A Piece of Cake and the backdoor pilot for Empty Nest. Writer Russell Marcus says that producers Paul Witt, Tony Thomas, and Susan Harris wanted to try and branch out a little into more dramatic stories. And what's more dramatic than somebody getting shot? Dashing detective Al Mullins was played by Joseph Campanella, a New York-born character actor who spent decades on TV across a couple of hundred credits. Early roles on Broadway, including in Garson Kanan's A Gift of Time, for which he earned a Tony nomination in 1962, led to dozens upon dozens of roles as cops, criminals, doctors, scientists, and anywhere else his rugged masculinity with a hint of sensitivity was an asset. Despite having an incredibly lengthy showbiz career that lasted almost 60 years, Campanella was almost never the star. In a lot of cases, he was barely a recurring character, He played the commanding officer of a high-tech detective firm on the first season of Mannix, before that aspect of the show was retooled and written out for season two. He did return to the show as a different character a few seasons later. He also had recurring roles on One Day at a Time, in which he played Bonnie Franklin's character's husband, The Colbys, and The Practice, where he played Judge Joe Camp. When he was in his 80s, Campanella did 97 episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful, he received Emmy nominations for his work on both that show and for Mannix. And from 1994 to 1997, he provided the voice for Dr. Kirk Connors and his out-of-control alter ego, The Lizard, in 20 episodes of Fox Kids' Spider-Man cartoon series. Of his few major movie roles, perhaps his best-known film is Ben, the 1972 horror film about a boy and the vicious pack of rats that befriend him, featuring a title song by Michael Jackson. Campanella did, however, star in gobs of TV movies, some with amazing titles like The President's Plane is Missing or Skyway to Death. Joseph Campanella passed away in May of 2018 at the age of 93. His final role was in the 2009 film Lost Dream, made when he was 85 years old. He was a that guy, and I mean that with the utmost respect. We pay so much attention to stars who often have roles tailored for them that we hardly recognize the actors who have to embody a character instantly because their screen time is a fraction of the headliners. Campanella had a long, successful career in Hollywood playing guys you knew from the jump meant business. There's an importance and an art to that, even if their names don't end up on the marquee. Campanella's partner on that Golden Girls episode knows all about being a star. But when To Catch a Neighbor aired on May 2nd, 1987, George Clooney was a 25-year-old actor with a great smile and very full hair, but not a regular gig. He was a veteran of many one-episode guest spots on shows like Riptide, Street Hawk, Hotel, Throb, and Crazy Like a Fox. 
he would have been best known for a recurring role on The Facts of Life as the Peekskill Girls' handsome hardware store-owning neighbor George, or from ER. No, not that ER, but a hospital sitcom with the same title that starred Elliot Gould, Mary McDonnell, and Jason Alexander that ran for one 22-episode season in 1985. So at the time he played Bobby Hopkins, Clooney was a known commodity, just not an in-demand one. Golden Girls director Terry Hughes remembers everyone in the casting session for To Catch a Neighbor, thinking that Clooney was an acceptable, if unremarkable, backup plan. It was Clooney's agent who actually got him the role, and writer-producer Barry Finaro remembers getting a call asking if the Golden Girls could help a young actor out of a very relatable jam. Quote, At the time, he had been kicking around sitcoms, but hadn't worked in a while. So his agent asked us, would you guys consider putting George Clooney in an episode so he can maintain his medical insurance? I'd never worked with George before, but he couldn't have been nicer. And now, when we see him in something, I get to joke with my kids, if not for me and the insurance he needed, that guy would not be the George Clooney. End quote. Rue McClanahan remembered the young stud being good in the part and thinking he had a big future ahead of him. Clooney has always had an admiration and sense of humor about his one episode with the Golden Girls. At a Screen Actors Guild Awards show in 2010, he followed Betty White on stage telling the audience, quote, In 1987, I did an episode of the Golden Girls, and I would like to thank Betty White for her discretion. A friend of mine told me she was a bobcat in the sack. End quote. After the Golden Girls, Clooney went from schlock-like Return of the Killer Tomatoes to a regular part on Roseanne to a starring role on ER, yes, now that ER, and eventually to international super-mega stardom as an Oscar-winning actor as well as director. Green cop Bobby Hopkins is a long way from Batman fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze or Danny Ocean knocking off the Bellagio, but hey, we all gotta start somewhere. Become a big movie star, and you might get a sweet bag of expensive swag from the Oscars. Win a Super Bowl or a World Series, and you might get paid to tell everyone you're going to Disney World. For Sophia, a well-timed zinger is like hitting a home run. And when they find out that Dorothy needs a hearing aid, it's like serving her a steady diet of meatballs right over the plate. In Season 7's Hey Look Me Over, written by Mitchell Hurwitz, Dorothy takes Sophia to the doctor to get her hearing check and ends up being the one who fails the test. Meanwhile, Rose thinks Blanche slept with her late husband Charlie thanks to some pictures that she found. The two storylines eventually converge, and the only winner is, of course, Sophia. Blanche, I know what happened between you and Charlie happened before you ever knew me, and I know I shouldn't be so angry, but I am, and I just can't help oh, it. Oh, come on, take it easy, Rose. How can I? What do you think this makes me feel like? What? She said, what do you think this makes me feel like? <laughs> it's out of the park. Game over. I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> she gets to go to Disneyland. Don't worry, Charlie didn't really sleep with Blanche. The pictures were a product of double exposures, and Dorothy does get used to wearing a very discreet hearing aid, so she can clearly hear her mother dunking on her forever. Officially, the name of the ad campaign, in which an athlete says he or she is going to Disney World or Disneyland after winning some grand event, is called What's Next? and it was originally conceived by Jane Eisner, the wife of then-Disney CEO Michael Eisner. 
The two were having dinner with friends who had just completed the first round-the-world flight without stopping or refueling. Jane asked them what was next. The answer was, well, we're going to Disneyland. And Jane later told Michael that the phrase would make a great advertising slogan. The first time the ad ran was after Super Bowl XXI in January of 1987. Quarterbacks Phil Simms of the New York Giants and John Elway of the Denver Broncos were both approached with an offer of $75,000 to say they were going to Disneyland if they won the game. Initially, Simms didn't want to do it, but changed his mind after he found out that Elway had already said yes. After leading the Giants to a 39-20 win over Denver, Sims ended up pocketing the dough and starring in a prototype ad that would run virtually unchanged for decades. just won the Super Bowl. What are you doing next? I'm going to go to Disney World. Later that year, Minnesota Twins pitcher Frank Viola and Lakers star Magic Johnson made What's Next ads after their teams won championships. The same song, When You Wish Upon a Star, from Disney's 1940 film version of Pinocchio, is used every time. And the narrator is Mark Champion, a veteran play-by-play man who's currently the radio voice for the Detroit Lions. Ironically, the Lions are one of the few NFL teams that has yet to play in a Super Bowl. Sophia's Disneyland crack was made in September of 1991, four years into the ad's history. The campaign continued non-stop until 2005, when it took a one-year hiatus. It returned the following year for Super Bowl XL, where the famous line was delivered by Pittsburgh running back Jerome the Bus Bettis. Although most frequently connected to the Super Bowl and the World Series, it's also been seen at the conclusion of Stanley Cup Finals, Miss America pageants, NASCAR races, America's Cup boat races, and most recently, American Idol season. Okay, last one. In Season 6's Girls Just Want to Have Fun Before They Die, written by Gail Parent and Jim Valley, Rose gets an ominous letter from the St. Olaf Department of Water and Coffee. The town's crops are dying, and in order to bring more rain, they're asking all citizens to abstain from sex. Don't ask. This is St. Olaf we're talking about. Blanche has decided to work as a love guru of sorts, and she instructs Rose to withhold sex from her longtime boyfriend, Miles, but not tell him about the whole St. Olaf rain thing. By making him go without, he'll be even more into Rose, according to Blanche. But it turns out Miles has some other ways to let off steam when his girlfriend suddenly isn't in the mood. Oh, you look very pretty tonight. Oh, not too pretty. I hope I have a date with Miles. How is he dealing with the celibacy? Well, he's doing fine. Although he does spend a lot of time at the batting cage. <laughs> Needless to say, Blanche's advice was worthless and nearly causes Rose and Miles to break up for good. Rose finally decides to call Miles and tell him the truth just in time for the rains to come back to St. Olaf, which means they can go back to doing whatever it is they do when Miles isn't at the batting cage. When I first started collecting sports mentions for this podcast, the Steve Garvey's baby joke bit was one of the earliest ones I added to the list. Thing is, I had no idea what the joke was referring to, and I've been waiting this whole time to find out. 
Boy, was I not disappointed. What a mess. The entire ordeal seems to have been forgotten by the public at large, but I'm sure it'll never be forgotten by Garvey's family or any of the other families affected by his lies. Garvey and Joe Pepitone are good reminders that we really don't know pro athletes as well as we might think we do, no matter how much time we spend watching or reading about them. A lot of fans couldn't care less about what a player does off the field as long as he's productive on it. I can't say I'm the same way. I do care and would prefer my athletes be admirable in more than just sports. But man, what I wouldn't give for a Steve Garvey's Not My Padre t-shirt today. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we get political and naked in pursuit of volleyball and other fun in the sun sports. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>